the Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. So uh, just a quick programming note, even though you probably, I probably shouldn't even admit this at all, but I'm on the top of a mountain right now. So uh, I, I hope the sound quality remains uh, remains strong. So um, I did this a couple of years ago. If you've been a long-time listener, you probably remember. Uh, I've done it twice, actually, uh, the show from the top of Palomar Mountain. My church, we're at a, a men's retreat up here. So snuck away for a couple hours so we could all be together. So uh, amen for technology. And this is crazy. That <laughs> It's crazy like there's any cell phone reception slash internet at all up here, let alone I can do a radio show from here and broadcast to your house or car or cell phone or wherever you're listening now. Um, so let's get to it. I, I, we got a, obviously a lot of news, but that's before we get to the specifics of the news, I want to talk about news. I read a New York Times article the other day, trying not to drown in a flood of major breaking news. Do you feel like you're drowning in a flood of major breaking news? It's, it's, we're just inundated. It's a tidal wave. And it is exhausting. I have people come to me sometimes and they are just like bugged out with like, I said, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> I'm like, wow, you look terrible. I know I've been watching nonstop news for three and a half weeks. I can't take it anymore. It's like, yes, you need to stop. You need to stop doing that. So I want to chat for just a second about the, the Western and, and specifically the American obsession with news and what this word means to us. And I think once we realize this and we realize that it's, it's kind of unique the way we look at news, then maybe we can start looking at it a little differently. So two quick points. Uh, America and Americans are obsessed with faster. I'm not just with everything. Always happen, right? Horse and buggy, not fast enough. We've got to invent the train. That's not fast enough, right? Uh, we've we got the plane, and then who can get from point A to point B faster? And then we got the hyperloop coming, and it's just we're faster all the time. Faster with the telegraph, and then the phone, and then FaceTime. We always, always want faster. And then when we get it, we're satisfied with it for about a minute. <laughs> right? And then it's on to the next thing. It's never good enough. Have you ever rebooted your phone, and, and you turn your phone off and turn it back on, and then you, you wait for it to turn back on, and you're like, oh. Come on. 
more computing power in the palm of your hand than the mission to the moon. And 1.7 seconds into the reboot, and you're like, oh, piece of junk, hurry, hurry up, could you? What are you talking? Like, we have this insatiable need for speed in America. That's point number one. And that's just in general. Not even related to news, although yes, but just everything. The second thing, news in the West is a sensation. 1901, there was a French sociologist. He said, I open a newspaper that I think is today's. This is 100 years ago. I open a newspaper that I think is today's newspaper, and I greedily read some news. He like takes it and like, oh, I'm going to read all these stories. I'm going to read as much as I can. I greedily read some news. Then I notice... It's a month or a day old, and it immediately ceases to interest me. So he was the first person to write about the sensation of news. Now, if we compare this to other cultures, because you're thinking, yes, later, like, how else? Of course, like, I want the news fast, and I want it, I want it all the time. Like, what, what else is there? In Arabic, so in the Arabic world, the Middle Eastern world, the word for news is best translated as information. And in Japan, so the Eastern world, the word for news is best translated as history. So the Arabic word, information, it doesn't have a, a sensation to it, right? It's just information. It's not news. I got a boom, 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 boom. Like, is that, is that a whole, it's not a whole thing. Like it is in America, it's just information. It doesn't have a sensation to it. And then the Japanese words of the Eastern culture, it's history. But that doesn't have newness to it. Right? Like in America, it's, it's fast and new. In Eastern culture, it's, it's just, it's history. It's a history. Right? But the history could be a second old, it could be a year old, it could be a month old, but it's doesn't matter. It's still, they're kind of, it's almost kind of like more of the Arabic thing. It's just information and this is just history. But in America, it's fast and a sensation. News literally means new things and we need it constantly because otherwise it's not new anymore. Like that French guy was saying a hundred years ago. Now this is fine. I mean, it's, I'm just, my point is it's different from around the world because we grow up like this. So we don't think that it's different around the world, but it is. And it's okay. But the trade-off is it's probably n almost never right. <laughs> right remember the whole outrage about jim comey and uh uh you know his memos was from this new york times sentence quote the new york times has not viewed a copy of the memo but one of mr comey's associates read parts of it to the times reporter <laughs> and then that turns into and i saw one report trump implores comey to drop the investigation about Flynn. Implores means to desperately beg. So do you see how the game of telephone works? Like, like Trump talked to Comey. Comey wrote a memo. Someone's reading the memo to a Times reporter. The Times reporter's writing about it. Someone's reading this report in the newspaper and then puts their own bias on it. Then they, they read that in another news report that says Trump implored, desperately begged Comey. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's... But like, why do we do it that way? Because we need it now and it has to be a thing. It has to be a sensation. 
And then that all turned into all this talk about impeachment, which when this happened on like a Tuesday, I said Tuesday afternoon on my, after, on my local show, I said, oh, this won't be a thing tomorrow. They just, they just, the TV news just needs something to talk about. And they're just filling time with impeachment. Impeachment's not, it's not a thing anymore. But we got to get the scoop, right? Got to get the scoop. We got to report on a memo, even if it's a reporter who's writing about it who hasn't seen it. So I, I think when I read about this, it, it, it changed how I view news because maybe now that I know this is how it works, I don't have to view it as such a sensation all the time. And I don't have to view it. I don't have to feel like I need it like right now all the time. So this is the New York Times article uh, from just the other day. What a year the last few days have been, huh? This is news in the era of President Trump. It slaps you awake, follows you around all day, intrudes on your conversations, interrupts your dinner, whispers as you try to sleep. It's been coming at a relentless pace from a hundred directions at once, breaking news alerts on your phone, memes shared on Facebook, angry tweets from your friends, and goes on. So this, this is my first point about this New York Times article. This, if this is your life, like if you, if you were like, yep, the news slaps me awake, follows me all day, interrupts my dinner, intrudes in my conversation. If that's you, I mean, do whatever you want. But if you don't like that, just know that it's self-imposed. CNN's not doing that to you. You're doing it to yourself. You don't have to live your life like this. Someone put on Twitter, they said, 2017, living in fear of the moment when the New York Times alert pops up on my phone multiple times a day. You don't have to download the New York Times app. And even if you have it, you don't have to sign up for the alerts. Opt out of the alerts. I don't have CNN alerts on my phone because I don't have a smartphone. So done. Problem solved. No more, no more alerts. Someone wrote, and they quoted this in the article, I feel like I'm being forced to, watch, to, to binge watch five seasons of a Netflix series in a week. So just, just don't. Just don't. You don't have to. There's a New Yorker cartoon and has two people walking down the street and the caption says, my desire to be well-informed is currently at odds with my desire to remain sane. <laughs> There's a balance there that you can achieve. Uh, and part of a well-balanced, inf- well-informed diet is the Blaze Radio. But try to limit other sources to whatever, to whatever you think is healthy. And if you cross that line, then uh, just know you don't have to. You don't have to be there because it's probably not for the best. There is a balance, like this person walking down the street saying, yeah, I got to find this balance. You can find that balance because the wounds that you feel from being inundated, they're self-imposed. So just don't do it anymore. I read a uh, letter from Thomas Jefferson the other day, and it was, it was to his grandson, just advice for life. And he was wishing him luck when he goes out into the wide world. And he said, life will, or society will, will force you to enter, in his words, the boisterous ocean of political passion. All right, the boisterous ocean, boisterous ocean of political passion. But Thomas Jefferson said, you know, I was there, but all I really want to do all I wanted to do was return to my harbor. 
yeah, I get in my ship, I go out into the ocean and, and get tossed around with the political passions of the day. But the whole time, I just really wanted to go back home. <laughs> he says, I wanted to go back to my harbor, take my ship back to the dock of, quote, my family, my books, and my farms. So that really is the most important part of your diet. Family, books, and farms. I want to start off with that before we get to the news of the day. <laughs> One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. This is Mike Slater. It's like Slater, it's nice to be here. So let's talk impeachment here for a second. Uh, Camille Paglia, she, uh, super feminist, voted for Jill Stein, <laughs> hates Trump, hates, hates, hates. She said, Democrats are doing this in collusion with the media, obviously, because they want to create chaos. They want to completely obliterate any sense that the Trump administration is making any progress on anything. So this is all, all this impeachment talk is just to, it, that no, let me put it like this. No Democrat is really wants to impeach Trump or is, has any intention of actually impeaching Trump. It's just to make sure that that's all people talk about and to just throw that out in the atmosphere so people can marinate in that for the next three and a half years of uh, he should be impeached or he could be impeached. Let, let me take a step back here. So. I want to tell a story. There was in the 30s, 1930s, there was a reporter for the New York Times and he was stationed in Moscow. He was the official Moscow correspondent, the the Soviet Union correspondent. His name is Walter Durante. And he won a Pulitzer Prize for all of his reporting in the Soviet Union. 70 years later, I think in 2003, the Pulitzer Committee revoked his award. I don't think that's ever I don't think that's ever been done before. They gave him a Pulitzer Prize and then took it away. Why? Because he lied constantly. Here just a little bit of his reporting about the Soviet Union. He said there is no famine or starvation nor is there likely to be. He said any report and this is a couple of years later, any report of a famine in Russia is today an exaggeration or malignant propaganda. This is stuff that was printed in the New York Times. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, twenty five thousand people were starving to death a day. Twenty five thousand a day on purpose from Stalin. On purpose. He purpose this wasn't just bad economic planning that resulted in people not having enough food and dying. This was Stalin saying we are purposely going to starve out the people of Ukraine. And at one point, all the Moscow journalists from all the American papers or or Western papers got together and they were talking about how to report about the famine and starvation 
back home while getting around the censors in Moscow, right? So if you write a report and you send it back to New York, it's got to go through the, the government first, the Soviet government they sign off on. So the reporter for the New York Herald, uh, New York Herald Tribune, asked Durante what he was going to write. And Durante said, quote, nothing. What are a few million dead Russians in a situation like this? Quite unimportant. This is just an incident in the sweeping historical changes here. I think the entire matter is exaggerated. <laughs> think of the, the, the perversion that an ideology like this, an ideology, an ideology of death that communism is, Think of the perversion that that does to your brain where you would ever say the sentence, what are a few million dead in a situation like this? And you're thinking, well, what do you mean ideological? He said, well, we're looking at sweeping historical changes, right? The, the road to communism. This is a sweeping historical change. That's, this is a terrible ends justify the means, which is never true. The ends do not justify the means. But to this guy, the end is communism. So the means getting there, listen, if a couple million Russians have to die in the process, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. That was this guy's perspective. This was the reporter from the New York Times who won a Pulitzer Prize for all this. Total hack. Let me make one more quote here and then I'll bring it to today. This is Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a British writer who was, I guess, conserv conservative <laughs> or against the communists. Um, he, he said, he, said uh, he listed a bunch of famous people. And then he said, down to the poor little teachers, crazed clergymen and millionaires, driveling dons and very special correspondents like Durante, all resolved, come what might, to believe anything, however preposterous, to overlook everything, however villainous, to approve anything, however brutally authoritarian, in order to be able to preserve intact the confident expectation that one of the most ruthless and bloody tyrannies ever to exist on earth could be relied on to champion human freedom, the brotherhood of man, and all the other good liberal causes to which they had dedicated their lives. So look, look at what people will overlook, no matter how brutal. Right? Look at what they're willing to approve, no matter how villainous. Just because, you know, like, yeah, we're going to fight the good fight, communism, and it'll be grand. Amazing. So what does this have to do with it? Who is calling for impeachment? Who was calling for impeachment? Okay. Maxine Waters. All right. Anyone else? Yeah. News anchors, a bunch of news anchors, the same news anchors who called for Trump's impeachment before he even won. I'll give you an example. This Andrew Sullivan, he's in New York magazine. He wrote just the other day, he said, an attempt to obstruct justice is an impeachable offense. And says Trump has just openly admitted to such a thing. So who's Andrew Sullivan? Before Trump won, Andrew Sullivan said that the possibility of Trump winning is a, quote, extinction level threat. So you're going to listen to his argument about why Trump should be impeached? You should listen, anyone, everyone should listen to Andrew Sullivan's analysis on impeachment like you should read the New York Times Moscow's correspondent on famine in the Ukraine back in the 30s. Are you with me? The same level of credibility, same level. Anyone calling for impeachment 
It's based on nothing. It's based on headlines. It's based on a memo that someone read over the phone to someone else. The only people really calling for impeachment are the people who have been calling for impeachment since November 7th or 4th, or whenever the election was. And remember, number one priority of TV news. You remember? Number one priority? Of course you do. Fill time. And that's all this was. There weren't even really that many congressmen, even th- just a couple crazies on the, the super far left. That's it. It was mostly just anchor people and, uh, and, and producers, TV show producers. Why? Because the number one priority is to fill time. And here's a story, and we don't know what else to say about it because it's a little complicated and we don't quite understand it. So we're just going to take the lowest common denominator and talk about impeachment and scream it from the rooftops and then say stupid things like, there are growing calls for impeachment when it goes from Maxine Waters and then another congressman. So now you have one to two, and now there's a growing call for impeachment in Capitol Hill. No, there's not. <laughs> there never was. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. If you want, we could take a second and talk about obstruction of justice and what that really is. Um, but I think on this theme, let's wrap this up. I want to come back and we'll talk about anonymous sources and how you should view and read stories that have n- anonymous sources in them. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. We'll talk about Comey here for just a few more minutes because I want to get to a crazy education story that maybe takes the cake. I know that's saying a lot, but I want to share that coming up in the next hour. Uh, I don't want to get too in the weeds here because you can pretty easily. But in the last couple weeks, there have been a ton of news articles based on anonymous sources. And a vast majority of them turn out to be not true. So we got to be very quick, careful. Um, I could get into the weeds because I could quote a bunch of them, but let me just pick one here. This is Washington Post. Uh, this is about the Deputy Attorney, uh, Attorney General, uh, Rod Rosenstein. Uh, Rosenstein threatens to re- threatened to resign after the narrative emerging from the White House on Tuesday evening cast him as the prime mover of the decision to fire Comey. Said the person close to the White House who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the sensitivity of the matter. Now you look at that and where's your mind go, right? Remember, we all, we're always creating movies in our head. That's what we do. We try, we get a couple data points and then we try to make a picture out of it. So we're making up movies. So when you hear Rosenstein threatened to resign after this narrative and you're like, oh, chaos, total, absolute chaos and backstabbing. and No one knows what's going on. Everyone hates everyone and it's totally out of control and, only we only know about it because someone felt the need to speak out about it because it's getting so bad and and rosenstein hates trump and trump hates rosenstein and they're going to resign a fire blah blah and the next day rosenstein comes out and says i'm not quitting what do you so who are we going to listen to the person close to the white house which could mean anything or he himself and then look, it's been a week since that article and he hasn't quit. So what, what, like, 
when you, a, a source that's quoted as a person close to the White House says, that's really like something out of People magazine or Us Weekly. You read an article about Taylor Swift and it's like, ooh, a person close to Taylor Swift is that. Who? What are you talking about? You're totally making that up. So I could go on. There's a ton of examples about that. But uh, here's, the, here's the story. I want to quote this. This is from On the Media. They made a while back a handy guide about how to listen to the media during an active shooter situation. All right, so you get breaking news, helicopter camera, you get a couple reporters on the ground at the airport or wherever at the school where there's an active shooter going on, active shooter situation. So you're watching the news and this tie back into what we kicked off the show with, news has to be fast, so it has to be as quick as possible and there has to be a sensation. So active shooter situations, news outlets love them. I mean, they don't obviously like it, but, but you're like, oh, it's our time to shine, right? So be careful. Here's a couple rules. In the immediate aftermath, news outlets will get it wrong. That's point number one. Two, don't trust anonymous sources. Three, don't trust stories that cite another news outlet as the source of the information. Four, there's almost never a second shooter. You hear about that a lot. Number five, pay attention to the language that the media uses. We're getting reports could mean anything. We are seeking confirmation means they don't yet have it. And we have learned means it has a scoop or is going out on the limb. Uh, Let's do another one here. Compare multiple sources. Big news brings out the fakers and the photoshoppers. And beware reflexive retweeting. Okay, so those are just things to keep in mind during an active shooter situation. So Molly Hemingway took that and used it as a guide for how to read the Washington Post and the New York Times breaking news stories about Trump. So we'll go down the line. In the immediate aftermath, news outlets will get it wrong. Don't trust anonymous sources. If democracy dies in darkness, anonymity is not exactly transparent or accountable. That is such a good point. So you know the Washington Post, their new super creepy headline is, or or, um, tagline for the newspaper is, democracy dies in darkness. Jeez. Right? You know, the New York Times has been all the news that's fit to print. And, And their slogan is, democracy dies in darkness. Wow. So the newspaper that says democracy dies in darkness is riddled with anonymous sources. That's not exactly shining the light. Unless someone is willing to put his or her name with a leak, be on guard. Now, I'm not saying it's not true. Just be on guard. Um, next uh, advice. If someone is leaking national security information, in order to support the claim of a national security violation, be on guard. If someone is claiming a serious national security crisis but not willing to go public with the claim and resign in protest of it, be on guard. Again, not saying it's not true, just be on guard. Compare sources willing to put their name and reputation on the line and pay attention to the language that the media uses. Is a story about something unimportant being written in such a way as to make it seem important. I think that's the whole Comey obstruction of Joshua's thing uh, in a nutshell right there. It's something that's unimportant being blown out of proportion to make it seem important because that's what 
news has to do, right? They got to, it has to be a sensation. So they have to make it seem important. So they just use crazy language to, to blow it up. Uh, let me do a few more. Beware confirmation bias. This one's so important. We talk about confirmation bias a lot, even if we don't use those words. Everyone, everyone has the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirming of one's existing beliefs or theories, right? So take all the people who hate Trump. When they hear one data point from an anonymous source that Trump did something maybe bad, confirmation bias in them takes that and says, told you so. I knew it. I knew he was, I knew he was breaking the law all the, all the whole time. <laughs> that's what it is, but that's any evidence, any new, anything confirms my belief that he's a horrible person. So that's how the news can get away with just a single data point of a story because people just take it and then apply it to what they already want and decided to believe. Pay attention to how uh, we don't need that. Let's do this one, one with this. Um, Pay attention to how quickly and fully editors and reporters correct stories based on false information from anonymous sources. If they don't correct it at all, it's an indication of a lack of respect. We had that conversation last week. I think we talked about it with, the, with Spicer and the Washington Post wrote this whole story about how Sean Spicer was hiding in the bushes and then they had to correct it with an editor's note that said, uh, well, okay, fine. So he wasn't hiding in the bushes. He was just standing over there with a bunch of colleagues around a television among the bushes. And it's like, yeah, those are very different. Hiding in the bushes? Versus standing near some bushes working? What? So here's the bottom line. Let stories sit. Let it sit. Don't get swept up. Just wait a day. So whenever there's a big story now, and I know it's tough because we're so trained to need to know right now and breaking news and I got to know before everyone else. Don't. Don't like really, really, really fight that urge. Fight the urge. At least fight the urge to come to conclusions. Obviously, you can watch the news and see what's going on, but fight the urge to come to a conclusion because when something happens, it takes at least 24 hours before anyone with any idea of what's actually going on says anything. And then it really takes a week before things start to settle down and, and start to make more sense. Um, do we have that clip, uh, L, about um, with Tom Brokaw? This is a, this is a, do we have that clip? This is a perfect example, if we have it, of um, waiting a week. So this is a week after Trump fired Comey. I remember when Trump fired Comey, everyone flipped out. Everyone totally flipped out. And this is broke off on Rachel Maddow uh, seven days later. Investigation. I haven't run into anybody yet who thinks that Jim Comey was doing a good job as the White House, I mean, as the FBI director beginning last summer. And then, as you'll remember, uh, Hillary Clinton and others in the Democratic Party all but blamed him for her loss. Now they're defending him as a champion. Exactly. So there's a lot of confusion going on here, Andrea, and our obligation, I think, is to sort it out, truth from fact, and deal with the truth. Now, Isn't that amazing? So, so, the, so for the, the first day, it was constitution so he fires trump fires comey the first day it's constitutional crisis worse than watergate has to be impeached unbelievable blah 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 a day after he fired him you get some people being like well you know 
here's what the Democrats said a couple months ago. He's, he's really not that good. And here's a bunch of reasons why he should have been fired, et cetera. So a week later, you get Tom Brokaw saying, yeah, I actually don't know anyone who thinks he was doing a good job. <laughs> so think of all the calories he wasted. I wasted. Everyone wasted. Freak it out for a week before reality came back around with Tom Brokaw being like, yeah, you know, no one really. <laughs> it's really not that good. He should have been fired a while ago. Isn't that amazing? And it's like that all the time. Fight the urge for news to be a sensation. Fight the urge to know right away. It's almost always wrong, especially with the media today and especially with how much they hate Trump. one 888 Mike Slater showed the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Let's talk about obstruction of justice. Definition here that you haven't heard anyone else say. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. If if someone would come out right away when all this obstruction of justice stuff was talked about right away, like I've told the story a million times. I was on Fox News. This is a couple years ago, and they don't tell you what you're most most of the time. At least in my experience, every time in my experience, they say, "Hey, can you come on this afternoon or tomorrow afternoon?" They say, "Okay, sure." What are we going to talk about? I'm like, ah, oh, we don't know yet. So you wait until you get there. Sometimes a couple hours before, sometimes right before. So I go down to the studio and I'm like, okay, what are we talking about? And they said, well, there was a um, accusations of sexual harassment in the Department of Homeland Security. This was many years ago. And I said, why do you want me to talk about that? There are accusations of sexual harassment in the Department of Homeland Security. Do you don't know anyone in the Department of Homeland Security? Like, what? I don't know. <laughs> what do I know? I They're like, oh, no, you'll do great. So yeah, I, I, I filled time or whatever. It's like, come on, guys. So that's what news is. <laughs> so you just think, why couldn't they find anyone who knew what obstruction of justice is right away when people were screaming obstruction of justice, obstruction of justice? It's crazy. So this is Elizabeth Price Foley. She's writing in the New York Times of all places. She says... If Trump said, hey, listen, you know, Flynn's a good guy. I hope you can let this go. If that's obstruction of justice, then she says virtually every communication between criminal defense lawyers and investigators would be a crime. And there's two specific parts of the criminal code that deal with obstruction of justice. First is section 1510, title 18. Uh, I'll just quote from her. She says, it is a narrow statute criminalizing all only willful acts, quote, by means of bribery that have the effect of obstructing the communication of information about crimes to federal investigators. So we don't know what's in the rest of the memo because no one's seen it. But from what we know, there's no, and what everyone's commenting on, there's no bribery. There's no proof or accusation that Trump bribed the FBI director. And as the Supreme Court case says, it's U.S. versus um, Sun Diamond Growers of California. For bribery, there must be a quid pro quo. There has to be a specific intent to give or receive something of value in exchange for a, an official act. Saying, hey, listen, he's a good guy. You want to, I mean, you should let him go. That's not bribery. 
Now, you could say, well, hold on, Slater. The assumption here, the implication, is that if Comey doesn't drop the case, then he will fire you, Comey. They'll fire him. Yeah, but that's always possible. Comey's an at-will employee who can be fired at any time for any reason. He wouldn't need a reminder from the president that investigating someone close to the president might result in his firing. That's, that's known and... It's not a threat. That's reality. So that, that that doesn't count as bribery. So it doesn't pass that standard. It's not obstruction of justice because it doesn't pass that standard. So how about this one? This is section 1505, title 18. Anyone who corruptly endeavors to obstruct the proper administration of law, quote, this is key, under which any pending proceeding is being had before any department or agency of the United States is guilty of a felony. So this only applies to a pending proceeding. An FBI investigation is not a pending proceeding. It has never been in the 120 years since this has been law. This has never applied to an FBI investigation ever. Not once. It only applied. It has only applied to proceedings that are going on in a courtroom, not FBI investigations. It's never been done before. Could it be done? I guess probably the first time wouldn't, wouldn't be against the president of the United States, but it's never been done before. So neither charge fits those standards or, or, or obstruction of justice, whatever Trump did or what people are screaming that he's done doesn't fit those two standards of obstruction of justice. Everyone you've heard scream these last week, obstruction of justice or impeachment. I guarantee you, they don't know Section 1505 or Section 1510, Title 18 of the Criminal Code. And if they did, they wouldn't be screaming such things. Isn't that crazy? So, listen, I'm not saying what Trump did is good or right. But it's not obstruction of justice. This is not. So that's why you got to be careful when you watch the news and, and get wrapped up and riled up from these people. Just don't. All right, I want to come up next, come back next with a story of our education system that is just... So sad. Do it next. Mike Slater, just spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. So I got to share this story because we can't be the only school district that has this happening. There, there's no way. And if we are now, if this is new in California or, or only happening in California, it will be happening in your school district soon. But, but I think it already is. So let me quote here from uh, the Voice of San Diego local newspaper. Googling answers in real time as you take a test. Letting online lectures play on mute while you watch a movie instead. Typing in random letters and numbers as answers and receiving credit. 
These are all moves that students and educators told me happen regularly in San Diego Unified's online credit recovery courses. So here's how this works. At least at San Diego Unified, our local school district. Second biggest in the state behind LA. Um, A student fails a course. Instead of having them retake the entire course for an entire semester, they take what they call online credit recovery courses. So you take them on a computer, either in the computer lab, it just takes a couple weeks, or you can do it anywhere. On the computers, they you just Google the answers as you're taking the tests. <laughs> and you can Google the specific questions, or you can Google and, and look up. Some people upload all the answers. And you just type in the answers, and, and no one cares. <laughs> There's rampant cheating. Everyone is cheating left and right, up and down. This is a student. No matter where you are, someone is cheating. That's a given, said a senior at the school. Now, you think, well, hold on. Why does the school allow this? Is it, or, I can't even say this with a straight face. Isn't the administration there to make sure that the kids get a good, high-quality education? <laughs> no, of course not. They don't care. They allow this, and they look the other way because they just want to brag about a high graduation rate. San Diego Unified two years ago bragged that their graduation rate hit 91% for the first time ever. Well, of course it did. How could it not? If, the, if you can straight up cheat on your test to pass, of course, of course you get like, if this is how easy it is to pass, then 91% is really low. It should be 98% graduation rate. I'll give you two percentage of people who just don't, even kids who don't even show up at all, right? So I'll give you those two percentage that just leave. But everyone else who just sits in front of the computer, you just Google the answers and you type it in, you're done. Like 91%, that's the best you can do. Check this one out. This one's my favorite. There will be a part of the test where you have to watch a five-minute lecture about, I don't know, Civil War. And the question afterwards will say, write a paragraph about the Battle of Shiloh. Whatever the student writes, they get credit and pass. Now, I'm going to say this again, and I want you to really listen to the words I'm saying and and come to a conclusion here. Are you ready? Whatever the student writes, they get credit. Now, if someone told me that, I would think, okay, so if the question is, tell me about the Battle of Shiloh, and someone writes, well, uh, the Battle of Shiloh was uh, in this year and between these two generals, and they were wrong, they would still get credit. No. I mean, yes, but I mean worse than that. Oh, okay. Uh, So if someone wrote about the Battle of Bull Run, they would still get credit? Uh Uh-huh, but I mean worse than that. Oh, so you must mean if someone writes with really poor grammar and, and bad punctuation and spelling, then they'd still get credit. Yes, they would, but that's still not what I'm talking about. I mean, literally whatever they write, they get credit. Meaning, if you take your, the palms of your hands and smash them into the keyboard, 
where up on the screen you have literally gobbledygook, just nothing, random letters, random letters that don't make words, random letters and, and symbols and just random made up nonsense. And you press send, you get credit because the program doesn't monitor what you write and the teachers don't check. So you don't even have to write real words and you get credit for the question. Tell me about the, write a paragraph about the battle of Shiloh and you just smash your fingers into the keyboards. Truly you get credit and you move on and then you graduate. And then the administration pats themselves on the back for a wonderful job they're doing with a 91% graduation rate. What is more pathetic than that? This reporter said he watched kids watch the lecture online, mute it, open up a new window and watch movies on Netflix. And then when they have to answer questions, they just open up a new window and then they look up the questions and they copy the question, the answers uh, down into the, the answer sheet. <laughs> Unbelievable. Now, San Diego Unified, I don't want to get too local here, but they are the least responsive bureaucracy I've ever worked with in my entire life. They don't answer any questions ever. If someone does stumble across an answer, it's a total lie. We've caught them in many, many lies. They are awful. And they will never come on and, and like on a radio show or anything. So the San Diego Unified would not let the principal, there's a school called I-Hi, like lowercase I, high, high school, I, high academy, would not let the principal talk, but a teacher at the school did and said, these, quote, these online classes are a joke. They demean the value of a, high, of a San Diego Unified Diploma and they're demeaning to the teaching profession and what I do in the classroom. And do you think the administration cares? Of course not. I don't want to get all into it, but in my, in my local show, I'll just tell you the very short of the story. Last September, a, a, a parent went to a local elementary school and said, school, there is construction going on nearby and I just want to make sure that there's no lead in the water in the school because of this construction. So the school tested the lead for water. There was lead in the water. Now, it had nothing to do with the construction. It was because of the water fountains. They're so old. There was lead in the water. The school told the parent and no one else. We just found out about this a week ago. This was last September. The school went pretty much the entire school year without telling anyone that there was lead in the water. Could you imagine the betrayal if you drop your kids off at a school, assuming that the water's not poisonous, they know the water's poisonous and they don't tell your kids. They don't tell you. (laughs) So if that happens, you think the school district cares about your kids and you think they care that they're cheating on tests? Of course not. Are they showing up? Good. They get paid. Are they passing? Good. They can brag about their high graduation rates. That's all they care about. Let me quote one more teacher. Uh, one day he told uh, he, one day he told his students he was going to shut down Google and other search engines so students couldn't look up answers and they told him you can't do that then we're not going to be able to cheat anymore. The principal took his concerns to the school principal, district official, officials, and later presented his findings to the school board. Even then, district officials were slow to make meaningful changes, and this, of course they haven't. 
Essentially, what we have, this is his quote, essentially what we have is widespread fraud in public school systems. And the people who are benefiting from it are the people who are in charge of public school systems. There's something about the culture of our public school where this is rationalized and promoted and it's a national shame. So I don't know if these online classes are going on uh, everywhere across the country. I, I just also want to be clear too. I'm not saying they're bad things on these online classes. But if, if there's no oversight, then yeah, they're bad things. Because what's even the point? I'll end here with a quote from a student. She says, I never thought I'd say this. This is a 17-year-old. I never thought I'd say this, but I actually miss being in a regular class with a regular teacher. When asked if she's learned anything this year, if I'm honest, no. I'm just going through and checking boxes to get it over with. (laughs) But the graduation rate's 91%. Aren't they doing a great job? I want to come back and share a story of how far we've fallen here. Um, I want to share a story of Frederick Douglass, one of my favorite Americans, and talk about how this is a cultural problem. Yes, it's a bureaucratic problem and it's a school system problem, uh, but it's a cultural problem more than anything. I want to share that story next. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders. So you have these online classes being offered. Uh, some, some programs, this is all there is, and some specifically is the course recovery, right? So it's kids who fail. And there's no safeguards to stop cheating, and the administration doesn't care, and many of the teachers don't care either. So what do we do? I mean, you can put more safeguards in. You can make it so they can't open up other windows. You can have teachers stand behind the students to make sure they don't cheat and all that. But really, it's a cultural thing. It's, it's kids don't want to learn. And that is, that's really sad. And that was me too. So I'm not, I'm not looking down at anyone. It's just you get the, the, the love of learning. It's, you're born with it, and it gets crushed out of you. It gets killed by the public school system. Let me share a quick story here, and then I'll get back to that. Uh, so Frederick Douglass. One of the greatest Americans ever. He's awesome. We've talked about him a million times. When he was a boy, he was a slave. And food was, uh, well, scarce. He says, uh, I have often been so pinched with hunger that I have fought with the dog, old Nep, for the smallest crumbs that fell on the kitchen table. And I've been glad when I won a single crumb in the combat. Many times I followed with eager step the waiting girl when she went out to shake the tablecloth to get the crumbs and small bones flung out for the cats. Check out this scene right here. Our food was coarse corn meal boiled. This was called mush. It was put into a large wooden tray or trough and set down upon the ground. The children were then called like so many pigs And like so many pigs, they would come and devour the mush. Some with oyster shells, so so in their hands to eat it, they would use oyster shells. Other with pieces of shingle 
some with their naked hands and none with spoons. He that ate fastest got the most. He that was strongest secured the best place and few left the trough satisfied. That's when he was a little kid. Eight years old, he gets sent to Baltimore. The wife of the slave owner, when he was eight years old, taught young Frederick the alphabet. The husband, the slave owner, found out about this and of course put a stop to it, but it was too late. The world was open to him like he never thought possible and he hungered, he thirsted for more knowledge. So this is what he would do. He would sneak out of the house. So urban slavery was different than country slavery. There was no sneaking off the plantation, but in the city, you could get away with that a little easier. So he would sneak out of the house and find some white kids in the neighborhood. And they traded. Traded what? The white kids had no food, but they could read. Young Frederick could steal food from the house. At this point, there was more food available, so he could steal food from the house, but he didn't know how to read. So they traded. So eight-year-old, nine-year-old Frederick Douglass would steal food from his slave owner, sneak out of the house, run down the street, meet up with some white kids, give them food in exchange for being taught how to read. He said, this bread I used to bestow upon the hungry little urchins who in return would give me that more valuable bread of knowledge. There's a high school in San Diego, one of our inner city high schools, Lincoln High. 75% of kids failed the remedial math class. And you think, well, yeah, that's the remedial class. They, you know, they couldn't do it the first time. They're still not going to want to do it. Uh, most, not most, the failure rate of this school is so high. And the administration, central office admitted it's because so many kids enter ninth grade high school with a second grade reading level. How, how, how is this possible? How's that possible? It's not the kids. It's not their fault. The kids, it's the system and it's the home. And maybe we can get to that next, but here's my main point. Everyone is born with a thirst for knowledge and for learning as much as possible. I got a seven month old, anyone with kids who's ever had kids has seen this process. So right now, Jack looks around at everything. He looks and touches everything and puts everything in his mouth, but that's how he learns. He's learning nonstop constantly all the time. Words, sounds, colors, pictures, things he's never seen before, things he's never felt, textures. It's unbelievable how he's learning. And when he learns a new thing, so we're, we're, I'm teaching him to uh, crawl up the stairs. And when he, when I, so I got him crawling at the bottom, bottom stair, and then I'll, I'll move his arm up to the first one, and then his next arm, and he'll, he'll go, he'll be scared. He goes, ah, ah, he's seven months, it's so cute. Ah, ah. And then I'll pick his other foot up, and I'll put his knee up, and then he picks his other foot up, and he gets up on the next step, and he goes, ah, hey, a big smile on his face. He's so proud. It's awesome, like learning everything. Now he's just seven months. Everyone who's had an older kid knows that when they're, what, two, three, four, five, it's just questions constantly, nonstop questions. There's nothing biological that says when kids enter the fifth grade, they lose their curiosity. There's, there's no reason 
that kids stop asking questions when they reach a certain age. That's not how that naturally works. The desire that the, the thirst for knowledge that we all have, it stops at a certain point because it is beaten out of us. Either culturally, oh, you know, it's not cool to be smart. Or with a system that fails to foster it. You know, we're going to pass you even though you can't read or we're going to just let you, you know, press nothing. Literally just jam your fingers into the keyboard and whatever comes up will pass except. And because the system is so rote, it's so assembly line, it's so brutally uh, one size fits all. It just crushes kids' curiosity and all the standardized testing and all the rest. So kids just stop caring. Every child has the desire. And if they don't at a certain point in their life, there's a reason why. And it's almost always the adult's fault. Look what Frederick Douglass, look at the lengths that he went to, to learn how to read. Look at the lengths he went to, to continue learning and gaining knowledge. And today, the, every piece of knowledge is at our kids' fingertips like never, ever before in human history. And they don't care. Whose fault is that? It's our fault. As adults, how much worse are we? Truly, I mean this genuinely. How much worse are we than Frederick, or better, I say, how much better are we than Frederick Douglass's slave owners as we allow this broken system to continue? As we take their natural love of learning that they're born with and we crush it. We crush it out of them. That's really sad. And we have kids graduating who don't know how to read. Frederick Douglass, a slave owner, or a slave, knew how to read. He'd do, look at the lengths he would go through. And kids today can't even be troubled to watch a lecture and answer some questions. <laughs> right? But it's not their fault. What do they know? We've crushed it out of them. It's our fault. It's the system's fault. And it's our fault because we allow the system to continue. Kids want to learn. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. I got one more education story I want to come back with. The K-12 education bloat. Every teacher who hears this should switch their affiliation from Democrat to conservative. And I'll prove that next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. I got one more education story, and then I want to talk about HR McMaster. Uh, we were supposed to do this a long time ago. We never got to it uh, for whatever reason, but I've seen a lot of McMaster on the TV lately, so I think it's important we know uh, more about him, so we'll do that coming up. Uh, this is a remarkable fact, and I, I hope you can remember it. I know it's hard to remember numbers and like you don't have enough going on, uh, but I'll do the best I can to remember it and repeat it often to, to help. But we've talked a lot before about bureaucratic bloat in the higher education system. 
and it's totally out of control. Not everywhere. Um, I don't. Re- I don't know. I can't remember these off the top of my head. But in the UC system, University of California system, in just the president's office, is it? What's the number? Is it over a thousand? It must be something like there's over a, there's something like a thousand employees, and in the Florida state system, there's like sixty four or something. <laughs> Maybe it's even more. I gotta look. I'll look it up during the break. It's it's even more. It's like a bigger difference. It's like wow. There's so much bureaucratic bloat uh, in, in higher education. It's so unnecessary. But we'll say we've done that before. I'm sure we'll do it again. But I want to talk about K through 12 because there's just as much bureaucratic bloat there. From 1950 to 2015, for every new student, right? Because obviously enrollment, there's more kids, right? More people, so enrollment's going to go up. For every new student. Public schools hired four full-time staff, and most of those were not teachers. <laughs> Let me throw one more number at you, and then I'll get to the key one. Public schools hired two and a half times, hired teachers two and a half times as fast as they added students. And you may look at that and you'd be like, oh, that's good. You know, we want smaller class sizes and yeah, student enrollment's going up. We want teacher enrollment to go up by, you know, a lot more because we, we like teachers and we want more teachers. Okay. But they hired, the schools hired seven times as many non-teaching staff. So bureaucracy. Now, this, this is the key right here. This bloat, this, this non-administrative staff, it costs money. So from 1992 to today, Education spending has increased 27% nationwide, K through 12, 27% increase. But teacher salaries, and this is all adjusting for inflation, teacher salaries have decreased 2% over that same time period. So all of the increased spending, none of it's going to teachers. Think about that. Now, if the public school systems hired staff, administration, proportional to student enrollment. So let me be very clear. I'm not saying there should be no administration. I'm not even saying that we shouldn't increase the administration when, when appropriate. So, so for this analysis, I'm going to also increase the amount of administration from 1992 to today. We're going to increase the amount, but I'm just going to increase it at the rate that student enrollment has gone up as well. If we did that from 1992 to today, That would have saved taxpayers $35 billion every year. That's $805 billion in total. If you spread that out to the teachers, that's an $11,000 raise per year per teacher. Now, think about this. Teachers predominantly support the Democratic Party. The unions, of course, do. Teachers are mostly progressive. And the unions, even if they're not, force them to support Democrats. What has that gotten the teachers these last few decades? Education spending has gone up, yes. But where's the money going? Not to the teachers. So every teacher in America needs to reconsider what good supporting Democrats for all these years has gotten them. Because if you've been, if you supported conservatives for all these years, conservatives would look at the bureaucratic bloat and say, oh, this is wasteful. This is unnecessary. We don't need all these administrators. They would take that money 
and give it to the teachers. And that would be an $11,000 raise for every teacher for every year. So what good has it done you supporting Democrats all these years if you're a teacher? Now you can't go back in time. So what do we do now moving forward, teachers? Are you going to keep supporting the same bureaucracy whose only priority is to grow itself, even though that doesn't benefit you who are also in the bureaucracy? It's just to add more people. Why? So that there's more union members, so that the unions make more dues, so that they can support more Democrats and Democrats can keep their, their office. That's how this racket works. This is the iron law of bureaucracy. There's two types of people in every bureaucracy. I know we've talked a lot about this. There's two types of people in any bureaucracy. First, you have those who are dedicated to the mission. So in this case, the mission is to educate children. There are good teachers, but they're in the vast minority. Because the second type of person in a bureaucracy are those who are dedicated to growing the bureaucracy. And that's the teachers union. They benefit from a bigger bureaucracy and they will fight for a bigger system. They'll fight for more administrators. Even if that means teachers are worse off and goodness gracious, even if that means kids are worse off, what do they, they don't care about the kids. The unions don't. I could go in a million different directions, but let me, I'll, I'll end uh, this segment with this. I want to read here from Erin Brighton. She is a uh, former public school teacher and an advocate. She would make the argument that parents uh, like wealthy parents and parents who have really smart kids should send their kids to a public school, even if it's worse for their kid, right? So if you're, if you have plenty of money and your kids are super smart, you should still send them to this a public school, even if it's bad for your kid, because it's good for the system. It's good for the country. Now she didn't realize that that's what she was saying. But she realized eventually that when she was saying that, she wasn't saying that for the good of the mission, educating kids. She was saying that for the good of the system, the bureaucracy itself. So she finally snapped out of it. And this is what she wrote. She said, if we insist on cramming students into schools and trailers, and underfunding schools and overemphasizing test scores, and there's really no hope in sight. If we insist on dumbing down curriculum and cutting back on arts and languages and not differentiating for bright kids, why should bright kids stay? If we want to mainstream our special ed students but not train teachers how to include them properly, how can those students thrive? I used to argue, she says, that parents with choices need to choose public schools in order for our public schools to succeed, right? The system. I've been choosing public schools for seven years here in North Carolina, and I've only seen the education situation get worse. So thanks anyway, public schools. Take my tax dollars and redistribute it amongst the masses. Maybe that's my new argument. Everyone who can leave should. And I 100% agree. Get out if you can. It was so funny. On my local show the other day, we made this argument, and... A couple days after that, someone called in. We were talking about something different with schools. And he said, Slater, I, I just don't know what to do. My kid, we're growing up in this one neighborhood, more inner city neighborhood, terrible schools. My kid's in the eighth grade, so he's going to go into high school next year. Terrible schools. I want him to go to this school just because it's where I went. It's where people in the community go. It's where his friends are going to go. But we have the opportunity to take him to this other school, which is way better, be new friends, more money in the, in the district, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, I just don't know what to do. 
and I didn't want to tell him what to do. So I asked him a bunch of questions and ultimately we got to the point where of course you sent him to the better school. He can, he works sort of for the district. So he has the opportunity to do that. Most people don't. Most people are stuck. So what do you do if you're stuck? I am praying desperately for parents to go on strike. I mentioned earlier, there's an elementary school in San Diego that had lead in the water and the school knew and didn't tell anyone. And the district's not doing anything about it still. I mean, it's insane. So how do you get the district to do anything when they don't care about you? You go on strike for a week. Parents, parents don't send their kids to the school for a week. Why? Because schools get paid based on attendance. I don't know if this is true everywhere and just in California, but they get paid based on attendance. So if you don't show up, if all the kids in the school don't show up for one day, I guarantee you that the principal of that school will go to Home Depot, buy a water fountain herself and replace it that afternoon so that there's no more lead in the water. On day one, the principal will do that. But as long as you keep dropping your kids off at the school, nothing will ever change. They're literally poisoning your kids, letting them drink the water, and they don't tell you. Why would anything change? If they're, if they're willing to do that, what are they, what would they, what's, what's a bridge too far for them? Like what's a line that they won't cross? They will keep doing this until parents go on strike. These aren't even very drastic demands we're asking for, right? Replace the water fountains, replace the poisonous water fountains. Let's start there. Don't even get me started on the, this, the academics, but with all this bureaucratic bloat, nothing's improved. So you have all these teachers who support Democrats and they may not even realize it, but they're just supporting the bureaucracy itself. They're not helping themselves as teachers getting paid more. They're not helping themselves as good teachers who want a little more freedom in the classroom to teach how they want to teach and what they want to teach as opposed to buy the book from some bureaucrat thousands of miles away in DC, then goes to the state capitol, then to the county school board, then to the local school board, gets filtered through all these people finally before it gets to you and you have no say in the matter whatsoever. Why would any teacher even want that? What have these unions done for you? What have the Democrats done for you in the education system? Nothing. Nothing. Truly nothing. Now we have the data to prove it's nothing. This is an objective fact. Support conservative cause, support candidates and support conservative causes in education. You will have more freedom and you will have more money. one 888 Slater Radio. And our kids will be better off. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. the next generation of talk radio this is mike slater slider Slater's coming up next going to talk about hr mcmaster and read a really interesting article about leading millennials in the military which is pretty fascinating so we'll talk about that coming up one last point though on kids naturally wanting to learn and if kids don't if there's a kid that doesn't want to learn there's something like there's something wrong that's not normal it's normal for kids to be curious and have a thirst for knowledge I was talking to someone the other day, his mom's a teacher, uh, third grade, I think. 
and there's a bunch of kids in the class and there's four kids from four different African countries who speak four different languages, <laughs> which sounds impossible. How do you possibly teach that? That's a, but the thing is, these four kids work harder than any of the American kids. They work harder. They show up on time. They work harder. They're more dedicated than any of the American kids in the classroom. Why? Because they appreciate it and they still want to learn. I think I have enough time to explain this. My wife and I were, uh, were doing this parenting class at our church. It's awesome. And the, the last class was about teaching your kids to respect and obey. You have to train your kids to respect and obey. It is not natural. Right? So the definition of obedience is first time, quickly, happily, and completely. So if you ask your kid to hand you something and they don't hand it to you, that's obviously not obeying. If you ask them to hand it to you and they don't, and then you ask them again and they do, that's not obeying because they didn't do it the first time. If you ask them and it takes them a minute, that's not obeying because it's not done quickly. If you ask them and they hand you uh, part of it, that's not obeying because it's not done completely. And if you ask them to hand you something and they do, they hand it to you, but they go or roll their eyes, not obeying because they didn't do it happily. And if they don't do any of those things, if they don't do all those things, then you have to discipline them right then and there. Otherwise it's all going to spiral out of control and it's going to spiral out of control about more important things than just hand me that toy. So the request from the parent has to be done the first time quickly, completely, and happily. Otherwise, it's discipline time because dad's in charge, not Jack. And if dad's not here, mom's in charge. And if we're not here, then the teacher's in charge, et cetera. I share this because kids need to be raised to happily uh, obey, right? They, they They need to be trained in this. Kids don't need to be trained to learn. They don't need to be trained to love to learn. It's much easier to train your kids to learn because they already love it than it is to train them to behave. Kids have rebellion in them. It needs to be disciplined out. But kids don't need to be taught to learn. They don't need to be taught to ask questions. They do it naturally. So again, when a kid's not, there's a reason why. So to go back to the kids cheating in, in high school on these, on these uh, online tests, why wouldn't they? Right, this kid goes through the system and it, it's killed. The love of learning is killed throughout the years through the public school system, through the assembly line that is the public school system and the standardized testing and all the rest. It's just murdered inside of them. So they get to high school and they don't care. So if they don't care about learning anymore and you tell them not to cheat, like, what do they care? They don't care because they're not curious anymore. You just you got rid of their thirst for knowledge. And if that's true, which it is for most kids, we're not doing it right. I bring up the parenting class with it because if you're a parent, you don't just want your kids to obey you. That's one thing. You want them to happily obey you. Right? It's just like God doesn't get, want us to give to the poor. He wants us to be a cheerful giver. It's all about the heart. And kids love to learn. They do. And if you ask a kid what, well, you know, what they learn in school today and they say nothing, it's a problem. It's a problem there. There's a lot of different causes for it. But one of them is the system itself. The public school system itself. It's got to go. It's, it's so sad because it doesn't have to be this way. Coming up next, leading millennials in the military. I'll tell you what that looks like, what that means next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word.
You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Welcome to uh, the show. We only got one more hour left. We got lots to do. So uh, I'll save HR McMaster. I want to share this part of the story first. Read a nice analysis uh, about millennials. The title is Leading Millennials in the Military. Now, of course, we've talked about millennials before. Everyone in the Blaze Radio has talked about millennials and the special snowflakes and social justice warriors and, and all the rest, mostly on college campuses. But I really got interested in one specific angle of this conversation when the former CIA director was doing an interview. He did an interview with us a couple months ago. about uh, It was on BBC about why there are so many leaks coming out of the intelligence agency these days. And he said it's because of millennials. The nature of warfare today, it's, you know, it's online cyber warfare. And it means that the CIA had to recruit millennials who grew up with computers and, you know, really good at computers. And they took computer code as a language in school or in their free time or whatever. So they had to hire all these millennials who are really good at computers. But the problem is they're millennials, And Hayden said, quote, I don't mean to judge them at all, but this group of millennials simply have different understandings of the word loyalty, secrecy, and transparency than certainly my generation did. And so we bring these folks into the agency, these millennials, and they're good Americans, I can only assume. But again, culturally, they have different instincts than the people who made the decision to hire them. So one reason, I'm sure there's others, but one reason out of, the, out of the CIA why there are so many leaks is because millennials just can't keep their mouths shut. And I'm not even going to say it's nefarious. I think a lot of it's just culture because their whole life growing up, there was never a such thing as privacy. Right? There, <laughs> there was, not only was it not, a, not possible but it wasn't even something they wanted. And, and quite the opposite, the urge was to create a brand and put everything online as much as possible. Isn't that interesting? So I know that if you're, I don't know, baby boomer today and you're listening now, you wanted privacy, All right? You wanted privacy. Then technology started increasing and privacy was getting a little more difficult to keep. But then it hit a point where with the millennials, it's privacy, who wants privacy? I'm going to Facebook live my entire life. I'm going to put everything I can on YouTube. I'm going to put all the pictures of my life and my vacation and everything about me on, on Facebook all the time voluntarily. I'm going, to in, I'm going to let people invade my privacy voluntarily. <laughs> so then these kids grew up and now they're in the CIA and hey, keep something secret. Secret? What's, what's that? I, don't, I know that. It, so then you add on top of that you know, some selfishness and these kids who are now adults are going into the CIA and then they do their work for the day and they go home and they say, Oh my gosh, let me tell you everything I did today. 
<laughs> post it online. Isn't that interesting? So I, I got fascinated by that when I first read that a while ago. Uh, it's, it's just millennials who can't keep their mouths shut. So that being said, came across this article by Keith Humbard uh, about millennials in the military. So he starts off saying good things about millennials, right? This is what you're supposed to do when you have bad news for someone. Make it a sandwich. Good news, then the bad news, then the good news. Soften it up. Uh, so he does. He says the good things. Right? So the good things about millennials, they're good in the military. They're good with technology. Uh, millennials want fulfillment in their daily lives, and that's good right? to seek fulfillment. They are group-oriented rather than individualists. Good team players. This was drilled into us in school growing up. It was all about group activities and being a good team player and all this stuff. So we're good at that. So that's all. That's the good stuff. Here's the bad stuff. Quote, some negative aspects of millennials stem from what some would consider failed parenting. They've always been treated as special or vital. Every milestone was marked with celebrations and praise. They may carry an air of entitlement about them and have constant anticipation of frequent and positive feedback. It's been taught to them that they are indispensable to society and the world at large. They feel an obligation to solve world problems that previous generations have failed to answer. Uh, are you, were that so far, right? right? Oh, you're so special. You're so wonderful. You're the most important person in the world. You're so unique. No one's ever like you. You're amazing. Most fantastic person ever to walk the face of the planet. Oh, look what a great job you did. You got a, a B on this test. You're amazing. Let's go out and celebrate. Like Everything is celebration and praise. So kids have entitlement, but also this insecurity that comes from, or it comes from that that says, praise me, praise me, praise me. Am I doing good? Am I doing good? Am I doing good? Tell me how wonderful I am. Tell me. How, like, we just constantly need that. So the kids, these grow up and they grow up and they go in the military where you get none of that, any praise. And it can be super discouraging because wait, what do you mean? Am I doing good? I don't know. Am I right? What's, am, am I not important? Aren't I important? Aren't I vital? Aren't I special? Tell me I'm special. A common goal for millennials is fulfillment in their lives. The problem is that years of growing up in an immediate gratification society has left them without the patience to see their efforts through until fruition. They're used to seeing something they want and getting it. So if fulfillment, that's their goal, right? So if fulfillment is the peak of the mountaintop, of course, they desire to reside on that peak every day. And they stand at the bottom of the mountain, staring up at the peak, reaching for it untainably. They fail to see the mountain in front of them that they must conquer first. Their life experiences have left them little to, without, the, without the tools necessary to begin the arduous journey from beginner to difference maker. Those tools are fortitude, determination, and patience. Right? So they, they want fulfillment. That's the top of the mountain. That's the goal, fulfillment. Okay, that's fine. But it's on top of the mountain. You got to actually climb the mountain to get there. But no one wants to do that. We just want it. I just want to be fulfilled. So we find cheap substitutes instead of the actual thing. This is a major problem. The tools that millennials don't have because they never needed to earn them. Fortitude, determination, and patience. So on my local show, every Monday at 11 o'clock, we have what we call the biographer segment. And we have a different biographer on every week. And we ask them the same question. What are three characteristics of this person, whoever, the Wright brothers, 
Uh, I, I can't. Uh, who did we do last week? Uh, who, did we, who did we talk about last week? Goodness gracious, I'm drawing a blank. But anyway, you get the idea. Uh, what are three characteristics of this person? Oh, um, uh, uh, da, 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 Calcutta. Uh, Mother Teresa. Jeez. So anyway, what are three characteristics of this person that define them uh, that we can apply to our lives? And without fail, 90% of the people that we've talked to, we've done it over a year, 90% of them say perseverance as one of the characteristics or some, some ask, something like perseverance, perseverance, determination, something like that. So it's pretty simple to come to the conclusion that you can't be successful in life without it. You just can't. You can't be successful in life without perseverance. And millennials generally lack it. That's a big problem. And it's not impossible. It's not that kids can't, can't still have it. We just have baby boomers who have raised them that made it so they don't need to have it. And again, I've talked to them like, like babies forever. And that's not necessary. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that with Jack with my son, my wife and I, we were, um, we were exhausted. It was, I forget what day it was. It was, but it was an awkward time of night. It was like eight forty, So it was too early to go to bed, but too late to do anything productive. So I was like, ah, oh, let's see what's on the TV. We haven't turned on the TV in forever. And it was total garbage, just total crap. And we ended up on master chef kids or something. Could that be right? And it was right near the end of the show and you got the, the tough guy chef and it's, it's kids like 10 year olds. And he goes up to the kids. There's like four of them. And he goes, listen, guys, really disappointed in you. This was not your best effort. Pretty bad result. You know, really, really pretty embarrassing. I know you're better than that. So let's clean up. Let's do a better job on dessert. Here we go. Come on. And the 10 year olds go, yes, master chef. And they get back to cleaning the pots and pans so they can start the dessert. And I thought, well, that was perfect. Like that, that's how that should go. So, so kids aren't as fragile and porcelain as society, as lately we've been pretending they are. You can actually talk directly and honestly and sternly and clearly to 10-year-olds and they won't cry a little bit. And you can do that with 18 and 22-year-olds in college as well and they shouldn't cry either. It was really interesting. The, the, the chef's like, listen, I'm really disappointed in you guys. Really bad result. I know you're better than that. So... What <laughs> Master Chef wailed at me. No, they're like, yes, Master Chef. And went back because they know they, they didn't do a good job. So anyway, here's the here's the quote from this uh, Marine again. During their adolescent years, many millennials participated in school activities and sports which lauded the group effort and gave equal acknowledgement to all. Everyone gets a trophy and no one keeps score. Though this method fosters a team mentality. It brings with it some unintended consequences. It can be traumatic, a traumatic event to realize that real life does keep score. Not everyone gets a trophy. And your level of effort is directly compar- uh, comparable to your peers. Giving a trophy to even the mediocre performers will make the individual feel embarrassed and ashamed because the individual knows deep down that they didn't deserve or earn it. Kids know the truth. If that master chef guy went up and was like, guys, listen, that was really, really good. Ah, yummy, yummy, so delicious. The kids would be like, well... No, we didn't, we didn't do a good job. So don't do that. Just be like, hey guys, that really wasn't a good job. They know. And if you give them a trophy that they didn't earn, they'll know. So don't do it. Interesting how these, uh, 
generations are so different. All right, I want to come back and uh, we'll talk about H.R. McMaster and, and how he's from the old school generation. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Actually, I got one more thing to say before we get to McMaster. I promise we'll do it next. Um, so the, the, this article, Leading Millennials in the Military, and how basically a lot of millennials have a tough time growing up and entering back or entering into the real world. Uh, it reminded me of Peter Pan. Everyone's seen Peter Pan, right? Or some version of it. So any version that you've seen is wrong. It's not wrong. It's very different from the original. That's how I should put it. All these Disney movies, the original versions from a long time ago are super dark. Like really, really disturbingly dark. And the same thing with Peter Pan. So Peter Pan today, it's all... Oh, you know, childhood is so great and I wish we could go back and be a kid and never grow up and wasn't that wonderful and now we're adults and adults are it's boring and if I could be a kid again. That's that's not what Peter Pan was at all, if you read the book. Peter Pan's a story about it's a cautionary tale to kids that says you don't want to be a kid forever. You want to grow up. You don't want to be like Peter Pan. Right, so Disney's taken it and said, "Oh, to adults, isn't it great? We, w- I wish we could be more like kids." But the real book is, "Hey, kids, you don't want to be like kids. You want to be an adult. You don't want to live in Never Neverland. You want to grow up." So Tinkerbell is awful. Uh, she, um, she's so small that she can only feel one emotion at a time. So, and she's awful. Like she gets drunk. And she fell in love with Peter. And like, so that's lust, right? So she has, she's one emotion. She has lust at a time. Um, and then there's another scene where she shoots Wendy with an arrow, right? So she's jealous. So, so Tinkerbell is the seven deadly sins. That's in the book. She's the seven deadly sins. And she experiences each one of those at a time. Jealousy, lust, hate, anger, whatever. Um, so she, you don't want to be like Tinkerbell. And you don't want to be like Peter Pan either. Because if you say a kid forever the original book says, then you'll never learn right from wrong and you'll never reach your full potential. But we've totally flipped it on its head. Isn't that interesting? I know we've quoted before Seneca. is about uh, around zero. And he was talking about adversity. It's one of my favorite quotes. He said, those, uh, those feet have been kept warm by hot air passing beneath the floor and circulating around the walls. If that's you, this man will run great risk if he is brushed by a gentle breeze. <laughs> I love that line. If you live in luxury, you become weak and pathetic and you might get blown over by a gentle breeze. And we are so prosperous today and, and baby boomers because maybe they grew up via, so the, via the greatest generation to the depression and the baby boomers and we're like baby boomers are so caught up and, and from a good place wanting to give their kids, millennials, the best life possible and really handicapped us. 
I forgot about this one, but it just came to me. Remember a while ago there was there was a story about a, a science teacher doing some demonstration about something. I forget what it even was. And they the teacher gave kids Oreos to teach the lesson on something. And permission slips were sent home to ask parents if the kids could eat the Oreo after the lesson. Permission slips for eating an Oreo cookie. I don't, what? I know, I know there's many more examples, but look at them like, permission slips to eat an Oreo. What are we, what are we talking about? What's going to happen when, when people who can't handle anxiety or adversity or a bad grade or a mean boss or a gentle breeze experience real life? And what's going to happen when this type of behavior becomes the norm? And what's going to happen when we're all Peter Pan and we just want to go back to Neverland and never grow up? And how odd that the original Peter Pan is, oh, no, you don't want to be here, kids. You, you want to grow up. It's better to grow up. Yeah, yeah, you'll be happier when you grow up. Oh, you'll be happier and you'll live a great life and you'll go do great things and you'll change the world and it'd be really, really great. You don't want to stay here. Neverland's not a good place. one 888 All right, I'll come back with HR McMaster. Let me just share this here, a quick little intro to him. Um, I think we talked about this part before, but I haven't gone into the, the, the depth of it. So HR McMaster, he's the National Security Advisor, and I've been seeing a lot of them this last week. You probably have too. He is right up there with Mad Dog Mattis, who's the new Secretary of Defense, as scholar warriors. They are brilliant men. And Mad Dog Mattis, he... <laughs> He's mocked before uh, he, the people. He calls them the fourth generation of war intellectuals who run around talking about how war is as the, the concepts of war have fundamentally changed because we're in a whole new era. And Mad Dog Mattis says, no, no, not really. He said, Alexander the Great would not be in the least bit perplexed by the enemy that we're facing now in Iraq. And this is my favorite line. He says, our leaders who go into this fight with ISIS do their troops a great disservice by not studying the men who have gone before us like Alexander the Great. He says, we've been fighting on this planet for 5,000 years and we should take advantage of their experience, experience. Winging it, winging it and filling body bags as we sort out what works reminds us of the moral dictates and the cost of competence in our profession. So he's saying, listen, we're gonna go fight in Iraq we need to know what Alexander the Great learned in 300 BC when he was fighting in Iraq. We need to learn from past experience. And if we go into this war thinking that things are fundamentally different just because we have new weapons, uh, human nature hasn't changed. And the, many of the situations on the ground haven't changed. We have to learn from the past. Otherwise, people die. These are brilliant minds. That we, and listen, there's a lot of intellectuals who are smart who don't think that that's true. I happen to think it's absolutely true. And luckily, so does Mad Dog Mattis and H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor. And we're already seeing some of the benefits. I know, I know of Mad Dog and, and also of H.R. McMaster, even just in the last week. So I want to talk about an interview that H.R. Not an interview, sorry, an um, uh, article that H.R. McMaster wrote many years ago based on a book he wrote that uh, the lessons from are already being used in Iraq. 
I'll prove that next. 1-888-933-93. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show with the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. So, H.R. McMaster, uh, National Security Advisor, great scholar warrior. Remember a couple months ago, this would have been when, oh, yes, Milo, (laughs) Milo Yiannopoulos. Remember the great fall of Milo Yiannopoulos. And we did a segment on steak and sizzle and how we are wired to look for the sizzle and to be attracted by the sizzle. But the problem is we get distracted by the sizzle and we don't even really look to see if there's any steak there at all. So it's all sizzle, no steak. And we talked about Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick, all steak, abhors the sizzle, has contempt for sizzle. I'm sure you've seen one of his press conferences. Hate, avoids sizzle like it's the plague, but he wins Super Bowl. Because he knows that to win games, it's all about the stake. And I think our conclusion when we talked about that was that we should look for people who are all stake, no sizzle. I have, I have no desire for sizzle anymore. I'm over it. I'm over the sizzle. So let's look for some stake. Let's look for substance and depth within people. And HR McMaster is a very no sizzle, all stake kind of guy. So in 1997, he wrote a book called Dereliction of Duty. And in the book, he criticized military officers for not challenging politicians during the Vietnam War. And he wrote this for his PhD thesis. Smart guy, bold. And he wrote this great essay about his time leading this tank battle in what's, during the Gulf War. It's called the Battle of 73 Easting. And he crushed the Iraqis and wrote an essay about some of the principles from that battle. And I want to talk about some of those, uh, those principles here. Cause I think they apply to today. The essay is called, it's something like 10 lessons from 23 minutes or something like that. So I want to run through three of these lessons. So here's one of the lessons and, and see if you can sense a progression out of these. First lesson, use standard unit fire and battle drills. He says it's all about pre-planned communication and action and by the book, right? So first rule or first lesson from the battle of 73 Easting in the Gulf War was we're going to use our standard unit fire and standard battle drills that we've trained and we've learned and it's time to execute. Next rule, fight through the fog of battle. Be prepared for confusion and concurrent activity. So a lot of things happening at once. Next rule, be prepared for misfires and degraded operations. 
So do you see the progression here? Because you look at this, and the first time I looked at it, I said, well, hold on. So you're telling me, lesson number one, use standard fire, standard battle drills. Lesson number two, fight through the fog of battle because things are going to get confusing and screwed up. And then rule number three, be prepared for everything to go to heck. <laughs> right? That's, that's the progression. Be prepared. Textbook operations. Then things will become foggy. Be prepared. Keep going. Then be prepared for when everything fails and falls apart. He tells a story of a private first class who was ordered to reload a tank, uh, uh, a tank with a missile, but he couldn't get the, har- the cargo hatch open to load it up, right? And he tried to kick the hatch release, but it broke off. The handle broke off. So instead of saying, oh, sorry, sir, I can't get it loaded. He jumped out the back door of the tank when it was under attack with machine gun fire, climbed on the back of the tank, loaded both missiles, and then tapped his commander on the shoulder and said, the missiles are up. And the staff sergeant nearly jumped out of his skin because he thought an Iraqi climbed into the tank. And he brought this lesson up because this is a perfect example. I'm going to load this missile the way I've learned a thou- and practiced a thousand times. Oh, it's not working. I'm going to, I can't open the hatch. I'm going to keep trying and I'm going to try until I break the hatch. Okay. I broke the hatch. Now what do I do? Well, I guess I'm going to jump out the back of the tank and do it myself. Right. Things didn't work properly. He didn't give up. He found a way to get it done. That's how you win battles. That's how you win wars. Let me, uh, I'll share one more story here. Let's do this one. This is, so one of the lessons is you have to take risks to win. Because Eagle Troop pressed the assault, these are our guys, the enemy could not respond effectively. As we cleared the westernmost defensive positions, our executive officer broke on the radio. He said, guys, I know you don't want to know this right now, but you're at the limit of the advance. You're at the 70 Easting. And I responded, tell them we can't stop. Tell them we're in contact with the enemy and we have to continue this attack. Tell them I'm sorry. That's, that's McMaster. So think about that. When you see McMaster up there right now, he's playing kind of like this uh, Mark Perry uh, nerdy guy with the glasses look when he does these press conferences. But the guy's a warrior. The guy's a total champ. So think about it. He's in these tanks and uh, you know, one of the guys back at base is like, hey, listen, guys, you can't go any further. Okay? This is all, except you're at 70 East and can't go any further. And he's like, tell him we can't stop. Sorry. <laughs> tell him we got to keep attacking. We had surprised and shocked the enemy. Stopping would have allowed them to recover. As Erwin Rommel observed in infantry attacks, the man who lies low and awaits developments usually comes off second best. It is fundamentally wrong to halt or to wait for more forces to come up and take part in the action. He says Eagle Troop continued to attack towards another very subtle ridgeline on what the enemy and which the enemy positioned his reserve, a coil of 18 T-72 tanks. The Iraqis had 18 tanks in this one area. Major Mohammed later told one of our troopers that he had not known he was under attack until a soldier ran into his elaborate command bunker yelling, tanks, tanks. And by the time he got to his observation post, all the vehicles in defensive positions to the west were in flames. He ordered the reserve behind him to establish a second defensive line, but it was too late. 
Eagle Troop's tanks crested the rise and entered the assembly area. The tanks were starting to move out when we destroyed them at close range. Continuing the attack beyond the limit of advance. Think about this. So here, like, guys, remember, lesson number one. Use standard unit fire and battle drills. And the pre-planned, this is what we're going to do. Okay? Here's the limit of advance, 70 easting. And McMaster said, well, we're going to keep going. He said, continuing the attack beyond the limit of advance, beyond 70 easting, was consistent with a command climate that not only encouraged, but also demanded that junior leaders take initiative. Colonel Holder told us during training that because of the pace of the action and the size of the battlefield, important decisions have to be made quickly by junior leaders in contact, the people on the ground. All regimental leaders must train their juniors to do the right things and then trust them to act independently. Leaders must teach and practice mission orders. And it was a message all leaders in the regiment internalized. So what does this mean? And this is, this is true for business too. You have to empower your employees to do the right thing and to take initiative and get the job done. You can't micromanage your employees. And in the military, here's McMaster saying, you can't micromanage the guys on the ground. You have to give them a mission and let them accomplishment, accomplish it. Now, where do we see that? This is amazing. We see it already with the fight against ISIS. One of the tiny details of uh, dropping the Moab, the mother of all bombs a couple of weeks ago. Remember, this is the largest non-nuclear weapon ever dropped in, in combat history. Dropped in some, uh, some uh, mountain range and where there were a bunch of tunnels in Afghanistan. A little footnote to that whole story is the military never told the president they were doing it. They just did it. Largest non-nuclear bomb in the history of the world. And they didn't tell the president. Now you may look at that and you're thinking, well, that's a huge problem. How could they go ahead and do that without the president's permission? Oh no, it's very different. They had the president's permission. The president Trump has authorized the military to complete the mission, whatever it takes. What's the mission? I don't know the specifics of it, but win, right? Defeat ISIS, whatever it takes. The president has empowered the people below him. He's empowered people in the military to accomplish the mission, whatever it takes. This is a sign of great leadership. Where did Trump get this? I think Trump learned this over decades of the companies he runs. Like he, there's no way a human can manage all the companies that Trump does without empowering people to accomplish tasks and accomplish missions and empowering them to, to, to do what needs to be done. Okay. So he's definitely learned that over the years, but then you combine that with McMaster, HR McMaster and the lessons that he learned as a part of the battle of 73 Easting, right? Remember we just talked about 70 Easting can't go past 70 Easting. Well, they did. That's why it's called the battle of 73 Easting. Um, you gotta, you gotta empower the people below you. So McMaster took that lesson to Trump who already knew it a little bit and said, listen, you have to empower the military to just do what it takes. Remember we've shared, I think twice the story of the Afghan ambassador. So he's the ambassador from Afghanistan to America. And he was doing this dinner with gold star moms. And they were asked, he was asked the difference between president Obama, and president Trump. And he went through a bunch of things, but one of them was that president Trump wants to win. And president Obama just wanted to not lose. And 
the Barack Obama White House was very Vietnam-esque. I remember McMaster wrote his PhD thesis and then a book criticizing the military leaders during Vietnam for not going after, not going after, that's not the best word, for not um, standing up against the political leaders at the time. What Barack Obama did with the military was very Vietnam-esque, very micromanaging of every decision. Why? Because he didn't want to win. He just didn't want to not lose or he wanted to not lose. President Trump wanted to win. So he's empowered the military to do whatever it takes. That is a huge difference and an exciting difference. So when you see McMaster giving these press conferences and he will, you'll see more of it. Uh, Now you know a little bit more about him. Smart, smart guy. Really respected, a scholar warrior, a student of history. Nothing, uh, because he's a student of history, nothing's new. He understands this has all been done before. They don't have to reinvent the wheel. And as uh, Mad Dog said, who's very similar, he said, if you don't learn from the last 5,000 years of history of war, then we're winging it and we're filling body bags. And we, we can't wing it. We need to know what we're doing. I'm really, really glad that Trump hired these two guys. And they are absolutely first class. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. You gotta go. Very annoying. Uh, But I'm really glad you've been here today. Let me give, uh, I got like two minutes. I'll give one little example here, something I'll leave you off with that I think is fascinating. Um, We talk a lot on the show about how we form opinions instantly. So just think about this whenever you hear all this Comey stuff and all this impeachment talk or whatever. Uh, This impeachment stuff is coming from people who already decided to hate Trump. So no matter what happens, they're gonna hate Trump. It doesn't matter. And that's what we do. We form opinions instantly, and then we protect them at all costs. We build a fortress around our opinions, and we never let anyone get even close enough to attack it. And we are very, very good at it. And I want to give a little story here about how good we are at proving ourselves right and protecting ourselves right. So researchers found that people will defend a decision that they never actually made. So what they do is they'll show someone two pictures of two different people and they'll ask the, the this, this person, who do you find more attractive person a or person B and the, and the guy goes, Oh, I, I prefer person a. And then the researcher will distract the subject for a split second and switch the pictures and then ask the, the, the subject why they decided that person a is more attractive. But the thing is, now it's actually person B. Are you with me? So they chose person A, but then in a split second later, they switched the people. And the guy, the guy didn't notice. And they said, oh, okay, so why do you prefer person A? But it's person B. Now, let me exaggerate here just for the sake of clarity, but I'm really not that far off. Let's say I have uh, uh, dark hair and, and someone else has blonde hair. Right? And someone looks at a picture of each of us and they say, uh, I'm more attractive because they prefer dark hair. 
And then the researcher switch, switches the pictures and then asks the person, so why did you choose this person? Only 25% of the people will say, well, wait a second. I, I, didn't, I didn't say that person. Actually, I said the, uh, the person with brown hair, not the one with blonde hair. Only 25% of people, 75% of people look at, look at the, the, the person they didn't choose and say, oh, um, yeah, I, I prefer that person because of the blonde hair. I love, I love blonde hair. I, I much prefer blonde hair. No, they don't. They're just saying that because they think they made that decision and they are desperately looking for ways to justify it. Because the last thing any of us want to do is admit we're wrong. To the point where we will convince ourselves that we find blonde-haired people more attractive even when we don't, for example. So obviously we see this with Trump hysteria everywhere. You know how many, after Comey was fired, you know, everyone being like, oh, it's Watergate, it's Watergate. No, it's not. But it needed to be for people who already decided that Trump needed to be impeached. So from this point forward, everything's always going to be worse than Watergate. Just know that anyone who says this is worse than Watergate or anything's worse than Watergate is really someone who really is nothing noteworthy to say. Slater Crusaders, we'll see you next Saturday. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network.